Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Yancey and ladies and gentlemen, I share with you today a great privilege. It is a privilege we have all shared, and that is we are all family of this great University of Virginia. I'm also privileged to share with you today some of my research on the origins and control of war. You might, however, want to keep in mind what Mark Twain had to say about researchers. He said, researchers have already cast much darkness on this subject. If they continue in their investigations, we shall soon know nothing. Okay, we're going to uh, be looking at, hopefully, what is the state of knowledge today about um, one of the great plagues that uh, mankind uh, faces. And that, of course, is the problem of war. Now, there are a lot of different uh, theories about where wars come from, but the typical list that one sees would include these major factors, as well as perhaps a number of others. In fact, the longer list are 20 or 30 different things. But these are the major ones, such as specific disputes among nations, ideological disputes, the ones we think of today, particularly after Al-Qaeda and ISIS, ethnic and religious differences, proliferation of weapons and arms races, social and economic injustice, an imbalance of power, or sometimes particularly the realists like to focus on competition for power. Um, some of you may have uh, seen the best-selling book recently from a Harvard international law professor, uh, The Thucydides Trap, talking about uh, the uh, competition between China and the United States. And then the notion of incidents, accidents, and miscalculations, that wars somehow are accidents. But I'm going to start off here by having you note something that we now know empirically when we do the research on it that's a little surprising, but it's also going to be critical in understanding war. And that is that wars are not accidents. Wars are always deliberate decisions to use force. Now, there may be miscalculations in those decisions, serious miscalculations. Almost everyone starting an aggressive war or any kind of war believes that it's going to be a cakewalk and this is going to be fairly easy to, uh, uh, to win. Uh, but in fact, uh, it sometimes turns out not to be the case. Just to give you the longest uh, war that the, or the people starting the war thought what it would, what it would last as to uh, the length of time was actually World War I and the German decision to implement the Schlieffen Plan in which they believe the war would be over in about 20 days. Think about that. Got that one a little bit uh, wrong in, in World War I. But nevertheless, uh, these are deliberate decisions by regime elites, uh, not accidents. Now, as we uh, 
look at sort of the reverse side of that, we see traditional approaches to war avoidance, and this would be sort of the major list. We can engage in diplomacy, or maybe it's a balance of power issue. The realists would very much be into that. Or the idealists would focus on third-party dispute settlement or collective security through, uh, through the League of Nations or the United Nations. Arms control, uh, resolving underlying causes of poverty, racism, and other kinds of underlying uh, issues. Now, when we actually ask the question on both of those two lists, what actually empirically correlates effectively with war? Uh, the answer is virtually nothing on either list uh, jumps out really with a powerful correlation. It's really quite surprising. Um, the, um, uh, this does not mean that these things are, are irrelevant. Uh, certainly some of these things are, are part of our toolkit as to how we deal with war. Uh, we're not going to throw away diplomacy or efforts at third-party dispute settlement or collective security and other issues. But the problem is, when we really try to understand war and how we control it, nothing powerfully empirically correlates uh, on those sort of traditional ways of thinking about it. Well, what does correlate? And the answer is the most important correlation is something called the democratic peace. Democracies rarely, if ever, wage war against other democracies. That's the most important empirical finding to date about the nature of war and peace. Now, here's another uh, uh, take on this. This comes from the former head of the political science department at Yale, uh, one of the top researchers empirically in this area, Professor Bruce Russett. A striking fact about the world comes to bear on any discussion of the future of international relations. In the modern international system, democracies have almost never fought each other. So this is a pretty critical uh, starting point. Now here is another way of looking at this. This is a list of wars. We're looking at major wars. Uh, just as you deal with health issues, you're going to have to have some way of categorizing the field. Uh, we don't categorize very well in wars, but one thing we do is look at international wars on one side, and then a particular category of those, major wars, and we have kind of a, an artificial way of, of categorizing major wars. You have to have a thousand combat casualties. But that separates it from all the minor little coercion that takes place uh, so radically and so frequently uh, around the world. So what we're really looking at here are major wars. In fact, this is a chart not really counting wars, but counting years uh, of war or absence of war between various categories of countries. And as you can see, between 1816 and 1991, zero between democracies. But we will see that democracies are still fighting a lot of wars, which has been obvious, of course, to us. And they are also, as non-democracies, fighting each other as well. Non-democracies seem to be kind of equal opportunity uh, warriors uh, engaging in wars against both democracies and non-democracies. 
Now, the uh, rest of the story here is some puzzles remaining about the democratic peace. Why do we have the democratic peace? What are the mechanisms within democracies that account for it? Democracies don't fight democracies, but they're still involved in a large number of wars, so where do they come from? Are democracies as aggressive in the use of major or minor force as non-democracies? How can democracies avoid wars with non-democracies, which is really kind of a bottom line for us, since that's those are the ones uh, we are fighting. Now, before I even get into that, let me just say that one of the interesting things about this data is this was discovered back in the 1970s by some scholars who did not believe it had any significance because the United States was at the time in the war with Vietnam, and so they thought, well, why is this important? You know, democracy is one. So, so what? Look at what we're doing in Vietnam. We're in this war in Vietnam. So this can't be uh, very important. So the scholars ignored it. So we actually had that one powerful database um, quite, quite a number of years until uh, it was really picked up by a number of scholars uh, at Yale uh, uh, working uh, on this with some books that uh, we funded at the United States Institute of Peace. Now, the, um, let's look at the questions of the causes of the democratic peace. I believe it's not any one thing. It's an aggregate of a lot of good features about democracies. Um, we have checks and balances and the rule of law, a critical component in controlling power. Our leaders are not chosen by violence. Uh, as opposed to how Saddam Hussein takes power by killing the opponents and uh, basically assuming power in a, in a coup. High levels of interaction with other democracies. We typically have shared belief systems with other democracies. And one of the things we've learned from macroeconomics uh, that won the Nobel Prize uh, that I call government failure theory uh, is that... Um, Democratic leaders have less ability to externalize cost on others and internalize the gains themselves. Uh, if a, um, um, a George W. Bush decided to invade Canada, it's really not going to do anything for George W. Bush but get him thrown out of office, get him impeached. But on the other hand, if Saddam Hussein uh, successfully invades Kuwait, he's going to end up with all of those uh, oil wells for his personal use. And so there's a great difference between the ability of leaders in democratic and non-democratic systems to internalize benefits and externalize costs on the population. Now, uh, one of the interesting elements here also is this question of our democracies as aggressive as non-democracies in the initiation uh, of wars. And uh, typically, the international relations departments are still teaching that there is no difference, that democracies are still just as aggressive as non-democracies. Uh, I differ with that. I would like to suggest that they have their facts wrong, by the way, there is a wonderful story on the importance of getting your facts right. 
And that is the uh, two neighbors. One uh, had a, a pet rabbit that she just dearly loved. The other had um, a, um, a wonderful German shepherd that she dearly loved. I think you can see what is coming. <laughs> On one day, to the horror of the German shepherd owner, in comes her dog with the neighbor's dead rabbit all covered with dirt and dead in the dog's mouth. So she thinks quickly, what am I going to do? This is going to destroy the relationship with my wonderful neighbor. So she takes the rabbit out of the mouth, uh, you know, washes it off very lovingly and gently, and uses the blow dryer on it. Uh, it really looks pretty beautiful, and walks across the fence and sticks it back in the hutch. And uh, then she sort of waits by the fence to see what's going to happen. Sure enough, a terrible cry goes up. She runs to the fence and asks her neighbor, what happened? What happened? The neighbor says, my rabbit died. We buried him and now he's back in the hutch. So let me just tell you that uh, those that believe that democracies are equally aggressive, we're not zero, but we're not equally aggressive with non-democracies. They have their facts wrong. Now let's just look at some of the uh, facts here. When I did an analysis um, of all of the major wars since the UN Charter, 86% of the major wars were initiated by non-democracies. That is 25 wars, 86% non-democracies, one that we would have a clear democratic aggressor, and three that you could argue about. Now, what are those? Let's just have a look at what they are. The clear aggression were Britain and France in the 1956 Suez War, um, in which the United States uh, condemned them and forced them to back down uh, at that point. Uh, they were trying to reverse the uh, actions of Nasser in se illegally seizing the Suez Canal. But Nasser had not used force, and so it was illegal to respond with the use of force under the UN Charter. Arguable aggression, we have India in the 1971 Bangladesh War. Um, I think many of us here will recall, as I do, that Pakistan at one point had West Pakistan and East Pakistan. And uh, one day when they held elections, uh, East Pakistan, today's Bangladesh, uh, chose uh, very different uh, leaders than um, the current Pakistan today, West Pakistan. West Pakistan sought to deal with that by massive genocide, a slaughter, taking place of the Bangladeshis today in East Pakistan. India stood by as long as it could. It took about uh, millions of refugees from the slaughter taking place, and finally it intervened. Now, you can argue that this is aggression. Um, when I presented this at the Naval War College a few years ago, the president of the university was there, she had happened to have been our United States ambassador to India at the time. And she said, oh, no, 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 this is humanitarian intervention. Well, I happen to agree with her. 
I think this is one of the best cases of humanitarian intervention, and I would argue that is lawful under the Charter. But arguably, this is one of the settings. The second was Turkey in the 1974 Cypriot War. This is a setting in which, under a non-democratic Greece at the time, the generals sought to basically uh, work out a series of actions that would uh, have uh, Cyprus uh, basically attached to uh, uh, mainland Greece, and the Turks went in. There had been a, a, a treaty of guarantee with the British as the guarantors between the two parties. Uh, the British backed down and said they weren't going to do anything. Um, so this one actually is very arguable as to uh, uh, the events. Now, I happen to believe the Turks uh, uh, went on to some very, uh, very bad uh, uh, practices in, in laws of war and, and uh, uh, very uh, extensive, uh, uh, I happen to be, uh, run a program every, every summer uh, in Greece to train people in the law of the sea. I love the country dearly. And I basically understand uh, the, how bad things were and what, what happened by the Turks in Cyprus at that point. The third was, of course, a recent war, the U.S.-United Kingdom in the 2003 Iraq War. Um, I debate this with one of my colleagues uh, in front of my international law class every year, and, and you can, frankly, debate it both ways. Um, but uh, it is at least one of the arguable uh, settings. Now, you might be surprised that I don't have Vietnam on this list, and the reason Vietnam is not on the list is because, in fact, um, everything we know now about the origins of the Vietnam War, which have been admitted in books by the North Vietnamese, were, in fact, that they were the initiator of the aggression in seeking to uh, put the country to, together. So Vietnam, actually, no one will even debate the issue uh, anymore on it because it's uh, so clear in terms of what Hanoi has said over and over uh, since the war. Now, one of the interesting things here, if you look at sort of the pathway to how we get into these wars, this is a little bit of, I won't go through all of this, it would take a little too long as to how we got into it, but most of the time, you can see uh, democracies are getting into the wars because there's really some kind of guerrilla or terrorist attack or a direct invasion of the democracy uh, or um, an ally. Now, one of the interesting things about all of this, another way to look at it instead of that 86% figure, that I think gives you a more meaningful figure and shows you the difference between the level of risk democratic leaders are prepared to take in starting wars versus a level of risk non-democratic leaders are prepared to take is simply to add up the total casualties in the wars started by non-democratic leaders versus the wars started by democratic leaders. And even if I add the arguably initiated wars in this, you get a 94% uh, of the total casualties in all the wars since the UN Charter, the major wars, have in fact been from non-democratic initiated wars. And it's only about a little less than 6% uh, that have uh, been in fact uh, from arguably even democratic initiated wars. 
But even that distorts it a little bit and, and says something interesting about the Iraq War because if you look at all the wars here other than the 19... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, 2003 Iraq War, what you find is it's less than 1% Democratic-initiated that uh, about 5.7% uh, of that figure is uh, the uh, U.S.-U.K.-initiated Iraq war. Um, I believe there was something quite different about the Iraq war. It's quite different than the normal democratic uh, behavior generally uh, leading to wars, and I think there are some good reasons for that. One is the 911 attack removed all the normal checks domestically uh, that would normally be working on the democratic peace. Uh, and the other is we were, after all, and are today the great superpower in the world, and there was no effective uh, deterrence that was going to deter us from the international system if we made the decision to go in. So it was a very atypical setting. But um, if you take that one out, uh, it's less than 1%, again, of uh, Democratic-initiated wars. I think there's an even more important way to look at this. If you ask the question of um, um, who is trying to use um, a war, use of force for value extension, that is to gain something, to steal something in essence, or to trying to annex another country or to uh, get, get riches or whatever it is. It's 100% non-democratic when you look at that. Uh, we can make arguments one way or another about the Iraq war, but um, I do not believe that the United States went into Iraq uh, to try to help the United States in any way economically or oil, all the kinds of things that some people argue or any of the rest. That's just not so. We went into Iraq, uh, rightly or wrongly, for concern about uh, Saddam Hussein, the humanitarian setting there as to whether it would change the Middle East, uh, the arms control issues uh, in relation to uh, uh, his weapons of mass destruction and another, another group of issues. I happen to personally believe, and I believed at the time, that it was one of the greater strategic blunders uh, that the United States has ever made uh, in its foreign policy. Um, I knew, was, was friends with many of the people that made the decision to go in. I argued against it, uh, and I think they made a ter terrific strategic mistake, uh, but they honestly believed what they were doing was going to dramatically change the Middle East uh, and make it, make it a lot safer. Okay, so democracies, I think the second point here is uh, they are not more aggressive. They are not equally aggressive. They are considerably less aggressive uh, than non-democracies. Now, there's obviously more to war than simply this question about the nature of form of government, however, democracies versus non-democracies. And the second most important element seems to be the effect from the international system. I'm going to roughly call that deterrence, but uh, don't get misled by just that one phrase that it's just military or something. It's every incentive externally 
that's going to be affecting a decision elite to make a decision for or against war. It's positive and negative actions. It's high levels of trade or an absence thereof. High levels of uh, shared uh, uh, activities or a lack thereof. Uh, effective collective security or a lack thereof. It's really the whole aggregation of external effects um, from the international system. Now, how do we know that's important? We don't have the kind of empirical data that we have uh, in dealing with the democratic peace on this. But there uh, are a great deal of, of, uh, uh, of books and evidence and information that suggests that this is very important. Uh, this book by Professor Kagan, who is one of the top historians in the United States, in fact, I think his book on the Peloponnesian War uh, is viewed by American historians as the top piece of history ever written by an American uh, professor. Um, and he wrote a book and taught a little seminar on war. And when you go through all of these, the basic message was that uh, all of these wars, uh, had you sought to deter effectively, were avoidable. Uh, if we had time, we would go through this. In my war peace seminars, I go through all of these in detail. But I believe he's absolutely right. They could have been deterred. Now, we need to think about a number of other things in relation to uh, deterrence. I'm going to just put a few of the other items on the table for you. One is there's yet another correlation that's very, very powerful in relation to war, in addition to the democratic peace, that we know empirically. High levels of trade between two countries dramatically reduce the risk of war. Good news for US-China, uh, for example. Um, so that's very interesting, and it, it's just obvious as to how it works. If you've got high levels of trade going on, that benefits both the parties, uh, you're going to lose that if you seek to engage in a war. So that's going to cut against it. Now, uh, we also find that individuals and how we think, how individuals are wired, uh, sort of behavioral economics gets into Excuse me, all of this as well. We're going to play a little game now. Um, this group is going to make some choices here on two slides. And, and you can just raise your hand and uh, you'll be voting for whichever one. Uh, this is really from prospect theory, a form of behavioral economics. But what we're getting at here is how people think that we're all wired all over the world, we now know, in, in doing this. Now, you're going to have to make a choice here. <coughs> Do you want to get a $900 for sure, or would you prefer a 90% chance to get a 1000 How many would like a $900 for sure? Most of the group. How many want a 90% chance to get a 1000 A few? Uh, let's choose again. Now you're going to lose 900 for sure, or you have a 90% chance to lose 1,000. How much? How many are going to take to lose 900 for sure? Not a lot. How many are going to take the 90% chance to lose 1,000? Very, very large group. Uh, okay. Uh, let's keep going. Now, it was a good day to come. Uh, you've been given $1,000. 
Uh, we'll have to talk to the Alumni Association about that. You're now asked to choose one of these options, 50% chance to win 1000 or get $500 for sure. Now, how many want the 50% chance to win 1000 A few. How many want the $500 for sure? A lot. Now, another choice. In addition, whatever you own, you've been given $2,000. you are now asked to choose one of these options. A 50% chance to lose a thousand or lose 500 for sure. How many want the 50% chance to lose a thousand? Pretty good. Or lose 500 for sure. Okay. Uh, more on that, uh, on it. So, but you can see that the skew that you're getting, as we'll see from the rest, next slide here, which basically is uh, work that won the Nobel Prize in economics uh, from uh, Daniel Kahneman, among others. Uh, this is a great book. I recommend it called Thinking Fast and Slow. And we now know that empirically individuals will take higher risk to avoid loss than to achieve gain. People will become risk-seeking when all options are bad and humans are simply wired this way. It works in investment. It's one of the one of the most difficult things to get a handle on in terms of uh, speculating, for example, in markets. The best speculators will tell you what you really need to do is to cut your losses short and uh, let your winners run. That cuts absolutely counter against human nature. So it's very difficult to do. Um, now, how does this affect uh, deterrence in international relations? It is because it makes a great difference what level of deterrence is required to prevent a Saddam Hussein from going into Kuwait um, and the level of deterrence required to get Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait once he has gone in. So this is yet another one of the kinds of inputs that you put into a sophisticated uh, overall notion of uh, deterrence. Now, a few years ago, uh, we didn't have a lot of empirical work on deterrence, and so I would just sort of read all the different wars in detail, and then I would have a, a scale of plus 10 to minus 10, how much deterrence was there, and so this is kind of an impressionistic thing. And you can see there's Moore's impressionistic score of a variety of settings from the Cuba Missile Crisis with no war, down to the Vietnam War and the last part with Vietnam's decision to uh, invade the South that ended the war with 23 divisions coming south after we pulled out. Now, uh, some of my colleagues said, well, Moore, you, you know, this doesn't work because you knew the outcomes in those cases. You know, we, that, you can't really do that. And so uh, we worked for uh, some time in a number of seminars to put together a an objective scoring system uh, of deterrence that has lots of different elements in it, including prospect theory. And that's called Stinger's methodology here over on the chart. And you'll notice the two of them work pretty well. They're pretty much together. And what you see is in the settings where you didn't have war, you had pretty high levels of deterrence. And where you had the wars, uh, you had very low levels of deterrence or negative 
uh, deterrence uh, in, in those settings. Now, the one thing that stands out counter to that is kind of interesting. Uh, you'll notice that in World War I starts with the Austrian decision to attack Serbia on the Eastern Front, not the Western Front, which is why we always mix up the war and think about it as an accident. But it was no accident in Austria and Germany, or Germany supporting Austria and making the decision to invade Serbia on the Eastern Front. And I'm giving it a very low uh, deterrence rating, and the objective one is giving it a low one. But then uh, what happens is Germany decides to invade Belgium and France, and uh, Stinger has had a, you know, something went up here, and something happened in the world that made deterrence go up, but I'm looking at it, something happened in the world that made deterrence go down. Well, I think this shows, actually, that contextuality is critical and is even better than your effort to try to simply do sort of these rough objective kinds of things. What was the event that happened? Uh, the Tsar was persuaded by his military after the attack on Serbia to mobilize. So the Russian army mobilized. Normally that would add deterrence. But not in this particular case, because in this particular case, <clears throat> the Germans had the Schlieffen plan for fighting the war. The Schlieffen plan said that you had a two-front war, and once Russia mobilized, you had to attack in the West immediately. So, in fact, it actually removed deterrence uh, in the setting. Okay, uh, let's go on to uh, a third element. So far, we've looked at the state, democratic peace. We've looked at the international system and looked at levels of deterrence from it. The third element really relates to the decision elite and those around them. And here are a few radical leaders associated with war and democide, that is, slaughtering their populations. Uh, pretty clear, um, dealing with an Adolf Hitler is not the same thing as dealing with a Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, and yet, realism today seriously is teaching that in many of our schools of international relations. Um, I, don't, I don't think so. This is not something that, that works. Now, um, it's also, well, that's interesting, tells me our battery is running close. I hope they're talking about the computer and not me, but. <laughs> okay, now uh, here's an example of Mao Zedong as one of these, for example. There's a wonderful book on Mao by Jung Chang and John Halliday. But part of it is, if you look at his own writings about his own moral philosophy, uh, of course, there are other people and objects in the world, but they are all there only for me. People like me only have a duty to ourselves. We have no duty to other people. Well, if that's your starting moral system, you can imagine uh, the kind of views that he might have toward war. And the answer is, well, war is a great thing. It's, you know, uh, areas of peace really are dull and boring and and wars are good, we, you know, we, like, we like wars. Uh, I have many more slides that are even more dramatic for Mao, but we don't have time to, uh, to look at those. Now, key advisors are important, too. It's not just the regime elite, but sometimes it's the key advisors. For example, Emperor Hirohito uh, had a series of uh, very militaristic uh, 
military around him and in the Japanese decision for war in the Pacific and for the uh, uh, for the uh, uh, attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, we know that, and they were pushing Hirohito very dramatically. I personally believe one of the explanations for George W. Bush getting into the Iraq War, which he was reluctant to do initially, is a group of key advisors uh, around George W. Bush that had been uh, coordinating together uh, before they took power uh, in the Bush administration. And they had been coordinating and telling the world that the one thing we needed to do to change the world in the Middle East and make it a better place was to remove Saddam Hussein from power. Uh, this was the group that included uh, Paul Wolfowitz, uh, Donald Rumsfeld, Richard Pearl, many others, uh, friends of mine, people that I have high regard for. I think they were terribly wrong uh, in relation to their assessment uh, that somehow this would really work a, a radical change uh, in, in the Middle East. But they believed this strongly. Uh, they were not doing it to, for their own uh, benefit or the benefit of making Americans richer. Uh, they were trying very hard to deal with uh, settings in which uh, the Middle East was filled with some very bad people. Saddam Hussein was one of those. I happen to have been uh, Kuwait's lawyer during the uh, Gulf War, and so I will always remember the day when the uh, uh, Kuwaiti ambassador came in and said, I wanted, want you to listen to some statements in the Iraqi parliament, and they were basically naming me, as, and we knew what naming meant uh, in the Iraq uh, uh, Saddam Hussein regime. So I have no illusions about this man slaughtering his population and what, what he was doing. But the question is, was this a, uh, was this a good uh, move uh, in, a, in a policy sense? But good or bad, the point is uh, this didn't originate uh, in the mind of George W. Bush. He was really persuaded uh, over, over many months, and I think it could only have happened in the aftermath of, uh, of 911. Now, what is the summary of some of that evidence then? Democracies rarely, if ever, go to war against democracies. Democracies have engaged in wars against non-democracies, though major wars principally initiated by non-democracies. An absence of deterrence is a major factor in the occurrence of war. Effective deterrence can prevent war. Individual leaders and their advisors are important, indeed can be critically important. Major wars occur primarily as a synergy between a number of different factors that we're looking at and how they interact. One is the form of government. The second is the level of deterrence and incentives from the international system. And the third is the nature of the individual leaders that are making the decision uh, and uh, their advisors. Now, how do we test that hypothesis? Well, we run it through all the major wars. We look at non-war settings, though you can't prove a negative here, uh, but it's, it's useful. And we can also look at all the other objectives that we have in international relations. And if we find that same correlation with democracy, it tells us that what we're really looking at in theory here 
is, yes, we're probably right about the democratic peace being important in war. And not only that, we're shooting broader game. We're really looking at a broader theory of international relations uh, that tells us how important the notion of democratic institutions and the rule of law really is. And so let's run that quickly. In consistency with major wars, let me just say, again, we wouldn't have time to run through these now, but any questions on it, I'd be happy to, to take. It's consistent with every single one of the major wars that we look at. Uh, the synergy works perfectly. Um, one of those that there's been a lot of debate in the past about with still being taught in American international relations departments that World War I started by accident. By the way, not being taught that way in Germany or in Europe today uh, because there was a great debate about this in Germany and uh, the younger scholars won it when they showed conclusively that there was a deliberate plan uh, as part of the Schlieffen plan, et cetera, in World War I, and that this was not an accident uh, on it. But at any event, this was a setting particularly where we see Count Leopold von Berchtold of Austria, the Austrian foreign minister, being really one of the worst of the villains. He's the one that really pressed Austria to attack Serbia and annex Serbia. Germany wasn't even fully informed of, of that uh, objective of Austria to fully annex Serbia uh, at that point. Um, but they did give a blank check uh, to their uh, ally. And there was a huge absence of deterrence. One of the great myths about the war is you had something sort of like NATO ahead of time uh, with Soviet Union and France and uh, or then, then not Soviet Union, then Russia and France and, uh, uh, and the uh, uh, British. But you didn't. Uh, there was nothing like that. In fact, the British refused to really engage in anything uh, like that at the time, much less any notion that there would be cooperation with the Russians uh, in it. Um, so uh, believe me, this was a deliberate use of force uh, by Germany and Austria um, miscalculated very badly as to what happened. War against terrorism fits it all so perfectly. Uh, who are the leaders that we see in these uh, groups of Al-Qaeda or Mullah Omar and the Taliban or ISIS and ISIL, uh, Bakr al-Baghdadi? Uh, these are all clearly anti-democratic, uh, totalitarian uh, thinking uh, leaders that are willing to use force aggressively to achieve whatever their objective may be. Uh, they don't care uh, whether they kill you or not. Indeed, in achieving their objective, they would like uh, to kill us. Absence of effective deterrence. Unfortunately, we went through a long period of time until 911 of an absence of effective, effective deterrence. I was in the State Department during a lot of this and uh, at one point drafted a U.S anti-terror convention that uh, not a single country in the world was interested in doing anything with. Uh, and there was just a huge and scandalous failure to uh, deter uh, terrorists uh, prior to that uh, period of, of time. Now, if you look at non-war settings, uh, well, again, this is the in the Sherlock Holmes uh, Inspector Gregory uh, setting. These are the dogs that didn't bark. 
Um, uh, that is, the uh, dog did nothing in the nighttime. That was the curious incident. Well, why didn't you have a war between the then Soviet Union and NATO, the Warsaw Pact and NATO? The answer is we had extraordinarily high levels of deterrence in NATO. I, I believe that NATO may have been one of the, may have prevented World War III and may have been one of the greatest uh, strategic, uh, wonderful uh, efforts uh, on the part of the United States and Western Europe uh, in, in the 20th century. Uh, U.S. Canada, we don't worry about the Canadians. Canadians don't worry about us. We're a nuclear power. Canadians aren't a nuclear power. Uh, why don't they worry about us, about ready to you know, sweep down on, uh, on Toronto? Uh, well, the answer to that is we're two democracies, and uh, we're not worried about each other at all. France and Switzerland, why don't the uh, Swiss worry about the French with their force to frap? Why don't we worry about the French with their force to frap? Uh, no, because it isn't just nuclear weapons uh, that do it. It isn't just a large army. It's uh, the democratic peace, basically. Uh, we're not worried about France and its nuclear force to frap or the, or the British nuclear arsenal uh, one bit. Uh, we are very much worried about a North Korean nuclear arsenal or a potential Iranian uh, nuclear arsenal. Now, let's look at some of the interesting correlations between government structures and these other major goals. Let's start with human rights. And here, this is one of the most staggering bits of information uh, that uh, we've obtained in recent years in international relations. We funded this book at the U.S. Institute of Peace by Professor Rummel, <clears throat> who was nominated for the Nobel Prize for this. He didn't win it. But we knew about the number of people that were killed in wars and combatant casualties, but we didn't know what were the number just slaughtered by their own governments uh, in, in peacetime and war. And so we had um, a book done by the best in the world on this, and it's just staggering. And you can see that it's something like uh, he was up to um, uh, about 169 million killed in the 20th century. And now, some of these, we know the figures very well. We've, we've all heard the Holocaust is about 20 million, a little more than 20 million. Uh, China, the PRCs, most, surprises a lot of people under Mao, about 35 million. Uh, people are surprised also that under the Kuomintang, uh, before uh, Mao took power, about 10 million uh, were killed uh, in China to keep power. And uh, we can just go down the list. The wonderful little Ho Chi Minh, by the way, in Vietnam, slaughtered about 1.7 million in a variety of his uh, uh, campaigns, et cetera, to stay in power, uh, et cetera. Uh, the uh, mega murderers tend, tend to be totalitarian regimes. The kilo killers or the kilo murderers in the scale are killing in the thousands instead of the millions. They tend to be authoritarian, uh, very badly authoritarian regimes. Here is a chart that puts it in perspective. It's kind of interesting. Uh, if you look at the pink part of this, that's combatant casualties in all wars of the 20th century. The green part is totalitarian democide. Um, Look at that, it's somewhere between two to four times the totality of all combatant casualties in all wars of the 20th century. We've 
uh, just a staggering figure. It's a new concept and understanding about the world in which we live. Picks up things like Pol Pot in Cambodia, etc. And then he's got a small sliver there of demo democracy democide. I frankly think the sliver is too big. Uh, things like what we did to the American Indians uh, that were bad, uh, and some other bad things that happened. Uh, uh, some uh, settings in Vietnam, uh, My Lai, for example, and some others that absolutely uh, very bad. But if you put it all together, uh, my colleagues and I who teach a seminar on the Vietnam War and some other issues think that one's a little high. But even if you you know, just look at that compared to totalitarian democide, it tells you everything you want to know about the difference between uh, democracy and, uh, and totalitarian regimes. And I throw this in because the kinds of numbers we look at, uh, your eyes kind of glaze over with you know, 20 million or 169 million, but these are, these are our people, these are our children, these are friends. Uh, and this, these are children in the Warsaw Ghetto uh, that were slaughtered in the, uh, in the Holocaust. Uh, on it. Now, let's look at economic development. Surely, economics doesn't relate to form of government. That just relates surely to how much oil you happen to have in the ground or, uh, or how close you are to markets. But no, it turns out there are multiple, multiple studies that have been done that show that if you, uh, countries with higher economic freedom, and it also correlates with higher democratic freedom, uh, Freedom House has done that work, uh, powerfully uh, grow better and have better, uh, more effective growth. Here is the chart. Uh, if you divide the country into five aggregate groups, you know, the top 20% uh, economic freedom, bottom 20% economic freedom, et cetera, throughout it, Look how neat and even that chart is. Goes from high growth rates in the yellow down to orange or red. Not too good, but still pretty good. Orange, not too good. And the bottom 20% uh, in levels of economic freedom are going backwards uh, in, in growth rates, uh, et cetera. And there, there are many, many other studies that have been done. The Fraser Institute in Canada has done it. Freedom House has done it, uh, looking at uh, levels of democratic uh, freedom, et cetera. This is perhaps the most dramatic, simple way to look at it. That's a nighttime actual photo, nighttime satellite photo of the Korean Peninsula showing the difference between North Korea and South Korea. Uh, that line is the, uh, at the demilitarized zone. So you can see that <laughs> uh, there is, there surely if Kim Jong-un can finally get a, get a grip on the world and decide he'd like to do something useful, the potential for North Korea, uh, if he were to do that and abandon nuclear weapons, would be much greater. How about the environment? Well, surely the environment doesn't have anything to do with that. Isn't the environment simply a matter of, uh, of externalization, of uh, you know, business costs, et cetera? And yeah, that's one of it, but it turns out that externalization of bad government is an even higher uh, cost of environmental problems than, uh, than even market uh, failure uh, classics. And here's some work. Uh, this one was sort of copying what we were doing at the U.S. Institute of Peace. It was done at the Norwegian uh, Peace Institute, one of the first that basically concluded, yes, there is the environmental correlation. 
How about famine? Well, surely there's no famine correlation. That's just how much rain, etc. No, no. Turns out famine is highly correlated with form of government. It's associated with colonialism, uh, with a form of distant government. It's associated with totalitarianism. You can even have terrible famines in, in uh, years where you have a huge abundance of food. And the one that uh, discovered this uh, was an economist who won the Nobel Prize for this, Amitra Sen, uh, an economist at Harvard, uh, on that, that work. Notice how all of this is so neatly correlating with democracy. How about terrorism? Once again, if you look at the principal uh, purveyors of terrorism in the world, uh, they have been uh, totalitarian or authoritarian regimes uh, rather than democratic regimes. How about corruption? Well, you can get corruption in every government in the world, but if you look at that chart, you will see a neat skew in the chart going from the most corrupt there at the bottom uh, up to, uh, as you get freer, you go to the right or more to the right side of the least corrupt. So you can get, this is a mixture, you have corruption everywhere, but you will get a, a very powerful skew uh, toward greater democratic and, uh, and, and levels of freedom and less corruption uh, in it. How about refugees? Where are refugees going? The answer is refugees are trying desperately to get out of totalitarian and to some extent authoritarian countries. Look at the refugees going out of Cuba initially, those out of the Taliban, out of Afghanistan initially that went back in after we went back in after the Taliban. It's just, it's, uh, it's extraordinary. These are figures from Transparency uh, International that looked at uh, international refugee flows, and it's just uh, very powerful. And this one of, of even the 23% is misleading because those are settings, uh, particularly from uh, right after the collapse of the Soviet Union, in which some of the, there are some civil wars going on in some of the countries around the Soviet Union as they head toward freedom, and people are fleeing uh, refugees uh, in those, those settings. Now, let's uh, try to put all this uh, in five or ten minutes in a, some kind of, can we get a broader theoretical framework to make sense out of all of this? And I'm going to give you a, a theory called Dakinko theory, which came out of the work here at the University of Virginia. And it is a deliberate non-word uh, because we found that trying to have a single word associated with anything misleads people into thinking it's something that it isn't. This really is dealing with a combination of focus on decision, focus on incentives affecting the decision, and the complexity that is looking at the aggregate of everything and how it's trying to all interact uh, together. Now let's just look at that. If you're really trying to deal with war, which is in a complex social process internationally, it's highly complex, it's multivariable, it's synergistic. It's not something simple. It's not some easy little thing that you can talk about balance of power, as though that's everything. It may be a factor, but that's not it. It's everything. Uh, it's more than sort of the interaction of states like colliding billiard balls uh, on a pool table, as the analogy in uh, neorealism to some extent. Uh, 
Now, one way of, that will help us think about this and the complexity and the full context internationally is this neat little thing that Kenneth Waltz uh, created back in 1954 for a Columbia Institute of the Study of War and Peace. And it said, let's look at international relations and where wars come from. What have people written about? And they said, well, part of it they've written about it's something in the nature of man. That's image one. Then some have written about it's something in the nature of the government, the kind of government. That's image two. And some have written about it's the nature of the international system, something in image three that he called it. Now that's kind of a neat way of thinking about things because that's really what we've looked at. We saw democratic peace, which was image two. We saw the international system that was image three, and then we picked up image one that had been the most neglected in all these theories and said that needs to be uh, into it uh, as well. And let's add some complexity here to throw in image one and a half that wasn't part of what he did, but these are just the, the advisors around the regime elites. Uh, you, you need a theory that's going to be usable, that gives you the ability to aggregate those factors in a particular setting to be able to make a prediction one way or another and to see what changes might, might make a difference uh, uh, on it. So basically, war is an interaction between not just the nature of man, that was the thing, problem with that book, it's individual heads of state in an individual case. It's not just the nature of government, but of a particular government that you're looking at in a particular case. And it's not just the nature of the international system, but rather the specific level of relevant incentives and deterrence from the international system affecting a particular context. Um, so what are we looking at here? Dekinko theory, decision, incentive, complexity. Again, deliberately a non-word. All right, what's the starting point? The starting point is wars are not accidents. So you have to focus on somebody is making a decision for or against war. This is the simple, easy starting point for understanding wars that amazingly we have overlooked uh, for all of these years. Um, it's really the obvious. Let me give you another great story about the importance of not overlooking the obvious. And this was the story about uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes and Watson, and they were uh, out camping one night under their, their tent, uh, under the stars. And in the middle of the night, um, uh, Holmes nudges Watson, says, Watson, um, look around and uh, look at all those stars up there. What do you deduce? And a very sleepy Watson looks up and looks at all those stars and says, well, there must be billions of stars, and maybe there's some planets, and maybe there's some other life forms. And Watson looks at him disdainfully and says, uh, or that is, Holmes looks at him disdainfully and says, Watson, you idiot, someone stole our tent. <laughs> well, I kind of feel that way about this, because the starting wars are not accidents. They're decisions by decision elites. And so we want to focus on that decision as the starting point. 
And then we want to consider all the incentives affecting that decision. This is where incentive comes in. I used to call it incentive theory. Um, and so we want to look at the incentives from image one, the decision elites themselves, their key advisors, uh, the form of government, the external inducements from the international system itself, and how it all uh, fits together. So what is complexity component of it? It's all of those images you want to plug in, and it's interactions between the relevant international actors and decision elites as well. It's not just a static kind of system. It's a complex interaction taking place. Let me give you a little greater color on the aggregates incentives here to drill down on the image. If we look at images one, one and a half, two, and three, here's what we get. Image one, what do we think? Look at the decisional elite. What do we want to know? What is their political belief system? Is it that of some totalitarian system like ISIL or, or uh, uh, Saddam Hussein or whatever? What's their personality type? We actually now know enough about good, solid personality understanding of something called the five-factor model that there are three things within the dark triad that are known as uh, Machiavellianism, subclinical narcissism, and subclinical psychopathy. For the most part, we're not talking about total mental illness or they don't stay in power. So it's really got to be sort of the subclinical that you're looking at. But you can see this in, uh, in, in some of these leaders just over and over as to what's there. Then you're looking at their personal experience, at their national, historical, and cultural perspectives. Um, whether the setting is a gain or loss setting under prospect theory. Their ability to personally um, benefit and to externalize cost. So there's a whole set of things that you can plug in on image one. Image one and a half on the key advisors is exactly the same, except here you might also look at how many of those key advisors are sort of ganging up on him and all saying the same thing, which is clearly what happened uh, in, to George W. Bush uh, in relation to the uh, uh, Iraq war. Image two, it's all a matter really of looking at that full set of constraints, et cetera, uh, from the democratic systems and the rule of law and what it does. But to keep in mind here that traumatic events can lessen the democratic checks. For example, the Pearl Harbor attack uh, lessened certainly the sensitivity of Americans to doing the right thing and even a president as uh, uh, close to the people as Franklin Delano Roosevelt put Japanese-Americans in internment camps, a great shameful thing uh, that we had done uh, in World War II that was completely unnecessary because all of the intel work that had been done uh, that was made available to the president showed they were not a threat uh, to the United States uh, in the war effort. Or we can look at 911 as removing the normal democratic checks. I do not personally believe that if you had not had 911, we would never have seen the Iraq War. It wouldn't have happened. Yes, those around George W. Bush might have tried to persuade him, but the checks would have been very dramatic and very, very substantial. They were removed by the, the trauma to the country 
of what happened at uh, 911. Image three is simply looking at the totality of all external incentives, uh, including positive as well as negative external incentives. Um, positive would include high levels of bilateral trade, high levels of joint participation in international organizations, etc. Negative would include deterrence through political, economic, or military sanctions. Uh, opportunity factors are things that are even fixed, like uh, territorial contiguity. We know that two countries that are physically next to each other have a somewhat higher risk of war uh, than countries that aren't, for obvious reasons, both for motivating factors and for objective uh, factors in your ability to uh, carry out the war. Now last, let's talk a little bit about classic deterrence on the international side, because here we normally talk about capability, will, and signaling or communication. But that's really only partly complete. We need a little more. We need a more refined interactive deterrence model. Because uh, here you need to be looking at how those signals are received by the, uh, uh, by the receiving entity. Think about the interaction between uh, Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. Uh, we can see statements being made, etc. But the question is also, how is that, what are the sort of level of contextual features that they each have in mind does someone have in mind sort of a Schlieffen plan, for example, and how is this going to interact in it? So it isn't just a simple, you are going to have the capability will and properly signal. It is how that may be perceived. And let me give you two examples. We've already talked about one in which adding deterrence didn't work and looked like it would. And one of those was uh, the Schlieffen plan in World War I, it looked reasonable to mobilize the Russian army. Did work, had the opposite effect. The second was trying to deter Japanese uh, aggression against Pearl Harbor and in the Pacific, when finally US lost patient and put a series of sanctions on Japan. That was the final uh, threat as to what happened. Now we're going to be running out of time here, so I think you've heard enough about uh, Dekinko theory and uh, background of war and peace. That's opening it up to uh, uh, to some Q&A. We have, I think, about 10 minutes at this point for it. Yes, sir. First hand back here, this gentleman. Uh, that one is very difficult. Uh, let's look at uh, North Korea right now because that's kind of the number one uh, security issue in the world today, I think, and the more immediate. Uh, very good question. And uh, one thing that is clearly present in relation to uh, Kim Jong-un is deterrence. The United States nuclear framework can absolutely obliterate him. Uh, he has to know it. Uh, there's, there's no possibility that he could not be aware of, of that. And so, uh, despite the fact that it's a very, very evil, one of the most evil regimes on planet Earth, 
slaughtering its people at a terrible rate, uh, a terrible totalitarian leader. Um, I do not believe that he would is going to make a, let's say, an attack, a full-scale attack on South Korea uh, or uh, in those settings. The, um, um, before the Iraq war, I got it wrong by predicting there would be no war because of the deterrence and Saddam Hussein would not attack, and I had not focused on the U.S. side. And so I would say... Probably it is, uh, we are not going to see a war in the Korean setting because even there the levels of deterrence are extremely high because we believe the latest uh, information I've seen is that Kim Jong-un probably has 50 nuclear weapons, 50 warheads, uh, including uh, the equivalent of a hydrogen bomb warhead size. That's uh, hugely bigger than Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Once you get to that, uh, in my judgment, you can't attack someone. And so I think we are going to be in a, an extended deterrence setting. Are we going to see some kind of immediate agreement on his part to uh, eliminate all of his nukes? I would be hugely surprised if that happens but nothing is impossible. And he might have decided that uh, this is his chance to make a great deal and to uh, make uh, uh, North Korea rich and uh, eliminate all of his weapons. But I'd be very skeptical about that based on his past performance. But I, would, I think it's unlikely, given the levels of deterrence on both sides, that we will see any kind of military um, activity but it is not impossible. But I would predict it will not happen uh, you know, from the North, despite the fact that we've you know, got a really, really evil regime uh, in the North, because uh, the level of deterrence is just you know, absolutely overwhelming in terms of what would happen. Yes, sir? President George W. Bush. Uh, John Bolton, of course, is now back as National Security Advisor. I understand Paula Dobryansky may be coming back. What uh, wh what do you see as the, uh, as the as the effects of the current advisory group on the administration? The um, um, many of the people that had advised George W. Bush in a way that I believe was very bad advice were friends of mine, I knew them. Uh, at least one of them was on my board at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Um, the, uh, these were good people trying to do what they believed. Um, but um, I am not a fan, I'll be very frank, of John Bolton. Uh, I was a great fan of H.R. McMaster. Uh, McMaster is one of the best we had. He was the one that ran the Army uh, uh, effort really in, in looking at strategic thinking and how you do it, and one of the best we had in the country, a, a magnificent man. I was very sorry to see him go. Um, we'll just have to wait and see. Um, and uh, sometimes uh, things work out, and when one is not optimistic about uh, personnel. Uh, but um, 
uh, I will hope that uh, that John Bolton will give good advice and that uh, uh, that things will work out. Uh, just to throw in another one in relation to that first question also that I think people would be interested in it is Iran. And um, Iran is an extraordinarily difficult setting because you really do have a totalitarian or authoritarian regime that's suppressing its population thoroughly. Um, the uh, the Ayatollahs, I think, uh, clearly do want nuclear weapons. And in my judgment, uh, we, uh, we did reach a very unfortunate agreement uh, under the Obama administration that left them with the ability through time uh, to have the agreement go away um, and presumably at that time have nuclear weapons and with some ability to be engaging in enrichment throughout and not dealing with their support for terrorism all over the Middle East or their um, their uh, statements against Israel, et cetera, which they uh, are making you know, just very clearly aggressive statements against Israel uh, on it over the years. Uh, we had put together a, um, a group of uh, five countries plus some others uh, in working on the sanctions internationally against Iran. So we had enormously effective sanctions. And I believe that Obama made a deal that was too easy uh, on Iran. Now, what do you do, however, when you have that deal in place? And I would not have done, I think, what President Trump did, which is to withdraw from the deal, simply because um, to withdraw from the deal, we're doing it unilaterally, uh, and all the other Europeans and other allies are basically in it. Now, um, I would have done other things. I would have wished to see a congressional resolution passed that made it clear that a, an Iranian nuclear program and uh, development of a nuclear bomb would not be acceptable to the United States of America and that um, uh, would be looking very carefully at, at full implementation of the agreement, but make it very clear that even after the agreement expires, uh, we will not find it acceptable uh, for Iran to obtain a nuclear weapon. We should have done that in the early days with Korea. Um, and then once they got the 50 nuclear weapons, uh, today I think it's you passed that, that point. But um, it's also possible that what the president has done um, may work out in surprising ways. Um, we are, if we are serious about trying to put them under pressure, we will be using these new levels of American economic sanctions, which are not anything like the sanctions that we economic sanctions of 20 years ago. We have the most effective economic sanctions in the world. Your banks can't, you simply cannot operate. Uh, if we seek to shut you down, you are shut down. And I think one of the reasons you're seeing Kim Jong-un come to the table is we are applying these new, really effective economic sanctions. But if we do that toward Iran today, we would have to do it in relation to our allies. Um, and if we begin doing that, uh, and the seriousness of those sanctions and putting their banks out of business, et cetera, is that going to work? Um, so, you know, we're going to have some real problems there 
The other side of it that's interesting is there is some evidence that some of this is beginning to generate greater unrest in Iran itself, which would be certainly welcome in terms of the potential for uh, an overthrow of the government internally and a new regime. Uh, Obama's approach basically was sort of counting on that. We would hope that through time you'll get a better regime, that Iran will change, and therefore we won't have to worry about it. 